Chapter Thirteen, Part Two, of South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gesine. South, the story of Shackleton's last expedition, nineteen fourteen to nineteen seventeen, by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Chapter Thirteen. THE ROSS SEA PARTY PART TWO The surface was better on February 2nd, and the party covered six miles without relaying. They camped in soft snow, and when they started the next day, they were two hours relaying over 150 yards. Then they got into Joyce's track and found the going better. Mackintosh overtook Joyce on the morning of February 4th and went ahead, his party breaking trail during the next march. They covered ten miles on the night of the fourth. One dog had chucked his hand in on the march, and Mackintosh mentions that he intended to increase the dog's allowance of food. The surface was harder, and during the night of February 5th, Mackintosh covered eleven miles, twenty-five yards, but he finished with two dogs on the sledge. Joyce was travelling by day, so that the parties passed one another daily on the march. A blizzard came from the south on February 10th, and the parties were confined to their tents for over twenty-four hours. The weather moderated on the morning of the next day, and at eleven a.m. Mackintosh camped beside Joyce and proceeded to rearrange the parties. One of his dogs had died on the ninth and several others had ceased to be worth much for pulling. He had decided to take the best dogs from the two teams and continue the march with Joyce and Wild, while Smith, Jack and Gaze went back to Hut Point with the remaining dogs. This involved the adjustment of sledge loads in order that the proper supplies might be available for the depots. He had eight dogs and Smith had five. A depot of oil and fuel was laid at this point and marked by a can with a bamboo pole rising ten feet above it. The change made for better progress. Smith turned back at once and the other party went ahead fairly rapidly, the dogs being able to haul the sledge without much assistance from the men. The party built a can of snow after each hour's travelling to serve as guides to the depot and as marks for the return journey. Another blizzard held the men up on February 13th, and they had an uncomfortable time in their sleeping bags owing to low temperature. During succeeding days the party plodded forward. They were able to cover from five to twelve miles a day, according to the surface and weather. They built the cans regularly and checked their route by taking bearings of the mountains to the west. They were able to cover from five to twelve miles a day, the dogs pulling fairly well. They reached latitude 80 degrees south on the afternoon on February 20th. Mackintosh had hoped to find a depot laid in that neighbourhood by Captain Scott, but no trace of it was seen. The surface had been very rough during the afternoon, and for that reason the depot to be laid there was named Rocky Mountain Depot. The stores were to be placed on a substantial can, and smaller cans were to be built at right angles to the depot 
as a guide to the overland party. As soon as breakfast was over, wrote Mackintosh the next day, Joyce and Wilde went off with a light sledge and the dogs to lay out the cans and place flags to the eastward, building them at every mile. The outer can had a large flag and a note indicating the position of the depot. I remained behind to get angles and fix our position with the theodolite. The temperature was very low this morning, and handling the theodolite was not too warm a job for the fingers. My whiskers froze to the metal while I was taking a sight. After five hours the others arrived back. They had covered ten miles, five miles out and five miles back. During the afternoon we finished the can, which we have built to a height of eight feet. It is a solid square erection, which ought to stand a good deal of weathering, and on top we have placed a bamboo pole with a flag, marking the total height twenty-five feet. Building the can was a fine warming jab, but the ice on our whiskers often took some ten minutes thawing out. Tomorrow we hope to lay out the cairns to the westward, and then to shape our course for the bluff. The weather became bad again during the night. A blizzard kept the men in their sleeping bags on February 21st, and it was not until the afternoon of the 23rd that Mackintosh and Joyce made an attempt to lay out the cairns to the west. They found that two of the dogs had died during the storm, leaving seven dogs to haul the sledge. They marked a mile and a half to the westward and built a cairn, but the weather was very thick, and they did not think it wise to proceed farther. They could not see more than a hundred yards, and the tent was soon out of sight. They returned to the camp, and stayed there until the morning of February 24th, when they started the return march with snow still falling. We did get off from our camp, said Mackintosh, but had only proceeded about four hundred yards when the fog came on so thick that we could scarcely see a yard ahead. So we had to pitch the tent again, and are now sitting inside, hoping the weather will clear. We are going back with only ten days' provisions, so it means pushing on for all we are worth. These stoppages are truly annoying. The poor dogs are feeling hungry. They eat their harness or any straps that may be about. We give them nothing beyond their allowance of three biscuits each, as we are on bare rations ourselves, but I feel sure they require more than one pound a day. That is what they are getting now. After lunch we found it a little clearer, but a very bad light. We decided to push on. It is weird travelling in this light. There is no contrast or outline. The sky and the surface are one, and we cannot discern undulations, which we encounter with disastrous results. We picked up the first of our outward cairns. This was most fortunate. After passing a second cairn, everything became blotted out, and so we were forced to camp, after covering four miles, seven hundred and three yards. The dogs are feeling the pangs of hunger and devouring everything they see. They will eat anything except rope. If we had not wasted those three days, we might have been able to give them a good feed at the bluff depot, but now that is impossible. It is snowing hard. The experiences of the next few days were unhappy. Another blizzard 
brought heavy snow and held the party up throughout the 25th and 26th. Outside is a scene of chaos. The snow whirling along with the wind obliterates everything. The dogs are completely buried, and only a mound with the ski sticking up indicates where the sledge is. We long to be off, but the howl of the wind shows how impossible it is. The sleeping bags are damp and sticky, so are our clothes. Fortunately, the temperature is fairly high, and they do not freeze. One of the dogs gave a bark, and Joyce went out to investigate. He found that Major, feeling hungry, had dragged his way to Joyce's ski, and eaten off the leather binding. Another dog has eaten all his harness, canvas, rope, leather, brass, and rivets. I am afraid the dogs will not pull through. They all look thin, and these blizzards do not improve matters. We have a week's provisions, and one hundred and sixty miles to travel. It appears that we will have to get another week's provisions from the depot, but don't wish it. We'll see what luck tomorrow. Of course, at Bluff we can replenish. We are now reduced to one meal in the twenty-four hours, wrote Mackintosh a day later. This going without food keeps us colder. It is a rotten, miserable time. It is bad enough having this weight, but we have also the wretched thought of having to use the provisions already depoted, for which we have had all this hard struggle. The weather cleared on the 27th, and in the afternoon, Mackintosh and Joyce went back to the depot, while Wilde remained behind to build a can and attempt to dry the sleeping bags in the sun. The stores left at the depot had been two and a quarter tins of biscuit, forty-two pounds to the tin, rations for three men for three weeks in bags, each intended to last one week, and three tins of oil. Mackintosh took one of the weekly bags from the depot and returned to the camp. The party resumed the homeward journey the next morning, and with a sail on the sledge to take advantage of the southerly breeze, covered nine miles and a half during the day. But the dogs had reached almost the limit of their endurance. Three of them fell out, unable to work longer, while on the march. That evening, for the first time since leaving the aurora, the men saw the sun dip to the horizon in the south, a reminder that the Antarctic summer was nearing its close. The remaining four dogs collapsed on March 2nd. After lunch we went off fairly well for half an hour. Then Nigger commenced to wobble about, his legs eventually giving under him. We took him out of his harness and let him travel along with us, but he has given us all he can, and now can only lie down. After Nigger my friend Pompey collapsed. The drift, I think, accounts a good deal for this. Pompey has been splendid of late, pulling steadily and well. Then Scotty, the last dog but one, gave up. They are all lying down in our tracks. They have a painless death, for they curl up in the snow and fall into a sleep from which they will never wake. We are left with one dog, Pinky. He has not been one of the pullers, but he is not despised. We can afford to give him plenty of biscuit. We must nurse him and see if we cannot return with one dog at least. We are now pulling ourselves with the sail, the floor-cloth of the tent, set, and Pinky giving a hand. At one stage a terrific gust came along, 
and capsized the sledge. The sail was blown off the sledge, out of its guise, and we prepared to camp, but the wind fell again to a moderate breeze, so we repaired the sledge and proceeded. It is blowing hard this evening, cold too. Another wonderful sunset. Golden colours illuminate the sky. The moon casts beautiful rays in combination with the more vivid ones from the dipping sun. If all was as beautiful as the scene, we could consider ourselves in some paradise, but it is dark and cold in the tent, and I shiver in a frozen sleeping bag. The inside fur is a mass of ice, congealed from my breath. One creeps into the bag, toggles up with half-frozen fingers, and hears the crackling of ice. Presently drops of thawing ice are falling on one's head. Then comes a fit of shivers. You rub yourself and turn over to warm the side of the bag which has been uppermost. A puddle of water forms under the body. After about two hours you may doze off, but I always wake with the feeling that I have not slept a wink. The party made only three and a half miles on March 3rd. They were finding the sledge exceedingly heavy to pull, and Mackintosh decided to remove the outer runners and scrape the bottom. These runners should have been taken off before the party started, and the lower runners polished smooth. He also left behind all spare gear, including dog harness in order to reduce weight, and found the lighter sledge easier to pull. The temperature that night was minus 28 Fahrenheit, the lowest recorded during the journey up to that time. We are struggling along at a mile an hour, wrote Mackintosh on the 5th. It is a very hard pull, the surface being very sticky. Pinky still accompanies us. We hope we can get him in. He is getting all he wants to eat. So he ought. The conditions of travel changed the next day. A southerly wind made possible the use of the sail, and the trouble was to prevent the sledge bounding ahead over rough sastrugi and capsizing. The handling of ropes and sail caused many frostbites, and occasionally the men were dragged along the surface by the sledge. The remaining dog collapsed during the afternoon and had to be left behind. Mackintosh did not feel that he could afford to reduce the pace. The sledge meter had got out of order, so the distance covered in the day was not recorded. The wind increased during the night, and by the morning of the seventh was blowing with blizzard force. The party did not move again until the morning of the eighth. They were still finding the sledge very heavy, and were disappointed at their slow progress, their marches being six to eight miles a day. On the tenth they got to the bluff peak, in line with Mount Discovery. My instructions had been that the bluff depot should be laid on this line, and as the depot had been placed north of the line on the outward journey, owing to thick weather making it impossible to pick up the landmarks, Mackintosh intended now to move the stores to the proper place. He sighted the depot flag about four miles away, and after pitching camp at the new depot site, he went across with Joyce and Wilde, and found the stores as he had left them. We loaded the sledge with the stores, placed the large mark flag on the sledge, and proceeded back to our tent, which was now out of sight. Indeed, it was not wise to come out, as we did, without tent or bag. 
we had taken the chance as the weather had promised fine. As we proceeded it grew darker and darker, and eventually we were travelling by only the light of stars, the sun having dipped. After four and a half hours we sighted the little green tent. It was hard pulling the last two hours, and weird travelling in the dark. We have put in a good day, having had fourteen hours solid marching. We are now sitting in here, enjoying a very excellent thick hoosh. A light has been improvised out of an old tin with methylated spirit. The party spent the next day in their sleeping bags, while a blizzard raged outside. The weather was fine again on March 12th, and they built a can for the depot. The stores placed on this can comprised a six weeks' supply of biscuit, and three weeks' full ration for three men, and three tins of oil. Early in the afternoon the men resumed their march northwards, and made three miles before camping. "'Our bags are getting into a bad state,' wrote Mackintosh, "'as it is some time now since we have had an opportunity of drying them. "'We use our bodies for drying socks and such-like clothing, "'which we place inside our jerseys, and produce when required. "'Wild carries a regular wardrobe in this position, "'and it is amusing to see him searching round the back of his clothes for a pair of socks. "'Getting away in the mornings is our bitterest time.' The putting on of the finisco is a nightmare, for they are always frozen stiff, and we have a great struggle to force our feet into them. The icy senegrass round one's fingers is another punishment that causes much pain. We are miserable until we are actually on the move, then warmth returns with the work. Our conversation now is principally conjecture as to what can have happened to the other parties. We have various ideas. Saturday, March 13th, was another day spent in the sleeping bags. A blizzard was raging, and everything was obscured. The men saved food by taking only one meal during the day, and they felt the effect of the short rations in lowered vitality. Both Joyce and Wilde had toes frostbitten while in their bags, and found difficulty in getting the circulation restored. Wilde suffered particularly in this way, and his feet were very sore. The weather cleared a little the next morning, but the drift began again before the party could break camp, and another day had to be spent in the frozen bags. The march was resumed on March 15th. About 11 p.m. last night the temperature commenced to get lower, and the gale also diminished. The lower temperature caused the bags, which were moist, to freeze hard. We had no sleep and spent the night twisting and turning. The morning brought sunshine and pleasure, for the hot hoosh warmed our bodies and gave a glow that was almost comforting. The sun was out, the weather fine and clear but cold. At 8.30 a.m. we made a start. We take a long time putting on our finisco, although we get up earlier to allow for this. This morning we were over four hours getting away. We had a fine surface this morning for marching, but we did not make much headway. We did the usual four miles before lunch. The temperature was minus twenty-three Fahrenheit. A mirage made the sastrugi appear to be dancing like some ice goblins. Joyce calls them dancing jimmies. After lunch we travelled well. 
but the distance for the day was only seven miles four hundred yards. We are blaming our sledge-meter for the slow rate of progress. It is extraordinary that on the days when we consider we were making good speed, we do no more than on days when we have a tussle. March 15th. The air temperature this morning was minus 35 Fahrenheit. Last night was one of the worst I have ever experienced. To cap everything, I developed toothache, presumably as a result of frost-bitten cheek. I was in positive agony. I groaned and moaned, got the medicine chest, but could find nothing there to stop the pain. Joyce, who had wakened up, suggested methylated spirit, so I damped some cotton wool, then placed it in the tooth, with the result that I burnt the inside of my mouth. All this time, my fingers being exposed, it must have been at least fifty degrees below zero, were continually having to be brought back. After putting on the methylated spirit, I went back to the bag, which of course was frozen stiff. I wriggled and moaned till morning brought relief by enabling me to turn out. Joyce and Wilde both had a bad night, their feet giving them trouble. My feet do not affect me so much as theirs. The skin has peeled off the inside of my mouth, exposing a raw sore, as the result of the methylated spirit. My tooth is better, though. We have had to reduce our daily ration. Frostbites are frequent in consequence. The surface became very rough in the afternoon, and the light, too, was bad, owing to cumulus clouds being massed over the sun. We are continually falling, for we are unable to distinguish the high and low parts of the Sestrugi surface. We are travelling on our ski. We camped at 6 p.m. after travelling 6 miles 100 yards. I am writing this, sitting up in the bag. This is the first occasion I have been able to do thus for some time, for usually the cold has penetrated through everything, should one have the bag open. The temperature is a little higher tonight, but still it is minus 21 degrees Fahrenheit, 53 degrees of frost. Our matches, among other things, are running short, and we have given up using any except for lighting the primus. The party found the light bad again the next day. After stumbling on ski among the Sestrugi for two hours, the men discarded the ski and made better progress, but they still had many falls, owing to the impossibility of distinguishing slopes and irregularities in the grey, shadowless surface of the snow. They made over nine and a half miles that day, and managed to cover ten miles on the following day, March 18th, one of the best marches of the journey. I look forward to seeing the ship. All of us bear marks of our tramp. Wilde takes first place. His nose is a picture for Punch to be jealous of. His ears, too, are sore, and one big toe is a black sore. Joyce has a good nose, and many minor sores. My jaw is swollen from the frostbite I got on the cheek, and I also have a bit of nose. We have discarded the ski, which we hitherto used, and travel in the Finisco. This makes the sledge go better, but it is not so comfortable travelling as on ski. We encountered a very high, rough sestrugi surface, most remarkably high, and had a cold breeze in our faces during the march. Our beards and moustaches are masses of ice. I will take care I am clean-shaven next time I come out. 
The frozen moustache makes the lobes of the nose freeze more easily than they would if there was no ice alongside them. I ask myself why on earth one comes to these parts of the earth. Here we are, frost-bitten in the day, frozen at night. What a life! The temperature at 1 p.m. that day was minus 23 Fahrenheit, that is 55 degrees of frost. The men camped abreast of Corner Camp, where they had been on February 1st, on the evening of March 19th. The next day, after being delayed for some hours by bad weather, they turned towards Castle Rock and proceeded amongst the disturbed area where the barrier impinges upon the land. Joyce put his foot through the snow covering of a fairly large crevasse, and the course had to be changed to avoid this danger. The march for the day was only two miles, nine hundred yards. Mackintosh felt that the pace was too slow, but was unable to quicken it owing to the bad surfaces. The food had been cut down to close upon half rations, and at this reduced rate the supply still in hand would be finished in two days. The party covered seven miles, five hundred and seventy yards on the twenty-first, and the hoosh that night was no thicker than tea. The first thought this morning was that we must do a good march, wrote Mackintosh on March twenty-second. Once we can get to safety camp, at the junction of the barrier with the sea ice, we are right. Of course we can, as a last resort, abandon the sledge and take a run into Hut Point, about twenty-two miles away. We have managed quite a respectable forenoon march. The surface was hard, so we took full advantage of it. With our low food, the cold is penetrating. We had lunch at one p.m., and then had left over one meal at full rations and a small quantity of biscuits. The temperature at lunchtime was minus six degrees Fahrenheit. Erebus is emitting large volumes of smoke, travelling in the southeasterly direction, and a red glare is also discernible. After lunch we again accomplished a good march, the wind favouring us for two hours. We are anxiously looking out for safety camp. The distance for the day was eight miles, 1,525 yards. March 23, 1915 No sooner had we camped last night than a blizzard with drift came on and has continued ever since. This morning finds us prisoners. The drift is lashing into the sides of the tent and everything outside is obscured. This weather is rather alarming, for if it continues we are in a bad way. We have just made a meal of cocoa mixed with biscuit crumbs. This has warmed us up a little, but on empty stomachs the cold is penetrating. The weather cleared in the afternoon, but too late for the men to move that day. They made a start at 7 a.m. on the 24th, after a meal of cocoa and biscuit crumbs. We have some biscuit crumbs in the bag, and that is all. Our start was made under most bitter circumstances, all of us being attacked by frostbites. It was an effort to bear hands for an instant. After much rubbing and bringing back of extremities, we started. Wild is a mass of bites, and we are all in a bad way. We plugged on, but warmth would not come into our bodies. We had been pulling about two hours when Joyce's smart eyes picked up a flag. 
we shoved on for all we were worth, and as we got closer, sure enough, the cases of provisions loomed up. Then what feeds we promised to give ourselves. It was not long before we were putting our gastronomic capabilities to the test. Pemmican was brought down from the depot, with oatmeal to thicken it, as well as sugar. While Wilde was getting the primus lighted, he called out to us that he believed his ear had gone. This was the last piece of his face, left whole, nose, cheeks and neck, all having bites. I went into the tent and had a look. The ear was a pale green. I quickly put the palm of my hand to it and brought it round. Then his fingers went, and to stop this and bring back the circulation, he put them over the lighted primus, a terrible thing to do. As a result he was in agony. His ear was brought round all right, and soon the hot hoosh sent warmth tingling through us. We felt like new beings. We simply ate till we were full, mug after mug. After we had been well satisfied, we replaced the cases we had pulled down from the depot and proceeded towards the gap. Just before leaving, Joyce discovered a note left by Spencer Smith and Richards. This told us that both the other parties had returned to the hut, and apparently all was well. So that is good. When we got to the barrier edge, we found the ice cliff onto the newly formed sea ice not safe enough to bear us, so we had to make a detour along the barrier edge, and if the sea ice was not negotiable, find a way up by Castle Rock. At 7 p.m., not having found any suitable place to descend to the sea ice, we camped. Tonight we have the primus going and warming our frozen selves. I hope to make Hut Point tomorrow. Mackintosh and his companions broke camp on the morning of March 25th, with a thermometer reading 55 degrees of frost, and after another futile search for a way down to the ice cliff to the sea ice, they proceeded towards Castle Rock. While in this course they picked up sledge tracks, and following these they found a route down to the sea ice. Mackintosh decided to depot the sledge on top of a well-marked undulation and proceed without gear. A short time later the three men, after a scramble over the cliffs of Hut Point, reached the door of the hut. We shouted. No sound. Shouted again and presently a dark object appeared. This turned out to be Cope, who was by himself. The other members of the party had gone out to fetch the gear off their sledge, which they also had left. Cope had been laid up, so did not go with them. We soon were telling each other's adventures, and we heard then how the ship had called here on March 11th and picked up Spencer Smith, Richards Ninnis, Hook and Gaze, the present members here being Cope, Haywood, and Jack. A meal was soon prepared. We found here even a blubber fire, luxurious, but what a state of dirt and grease! However, warmth and food are at present our principal objects. While we were having our meal, Jack and Haywood appeared. Late in the evening we turned into dry bags. As there are only three bags here, we take it in turns to use them. Our party have the privilege. I got a letter here from Stenhouse, giving a summary of his doings since we left him. The ship's party also have not had a rosy time. Mackintosh learned here 
that Spencer Smith, Jack, and Gaze, who had turned back on February 10th, had reached Hut Point without difficulty. The third party, headed by Cope, had also been out on the barrier but had not done much. This party had attempted to use the motor tractor, but had failed to get effective service from the machine and had not proceeded far afield. The motor was now lying at Hut Point. Spencer Smith's party and Cope's party had both returned to Hut Point before the end of February. The six men, now at Hut Point, were cut off from the winter quarters of the expedition at Cape Evans by the open water of McMurdo Sound. Mackintosh naturally was anxious to make the crossing and get in touch with the ship and the other members of the shore party, but he could not make a move until the sea ice became firm, and, as events occurred, he did not reach Cape Evans until the beginning of June. He went out with Cope and Haywood on March 29th to get his sledge and bring it out as far as Pram Point, on the south side of Hut Point. He had to leave the sledge there, owing to the condition of the sea ice. He and his companions lived an uneventful life under primitive conditions at the hut. The weather was bad, and though the temperatures recorded were low, the young sea ice continually broke away. The blubber stove, in use at the hut, seemed to have produced soot and grease in the usual large quantities, and the men and their clothing suffered accordingly. The whites of their eyes contrasted vividly with the dense blackness of their skins. Wilde and Joyce had a great deal of trouble with their frostbites. Joyce had both feet blistered, his knees were swollen, and his hands also were blistered. Jack devised some blubber lamps, which produced an uncertain light and much additional smoke. Mackintosh records that the members of the party were contented enough, but unspeakably dirty, and he writes longingly of baths and clean clothing. The store of seal blubber ran low early in April, and all hands kept a sharp lookout for seals. On April 15th, several seals were seen and killed. The operations of killing and skinning made worse the greasy and blackened clothes of the men. It is to be regretted that though there was a great deal of literature available, especially on this particular district, the leaders of the various parties had not taken advantage of it, and so supplemented their knowledge. Joyce and Mackintosh, of course, had had previous Antarctic experience, but it was open to all to have carefully studied the detailed instructions published in the books of the last three expeditions in this quarter. End of chapter 13, part 2 of 2 Recorded by Gesine in September 2007